Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. There are symbols of the Confederacy that still appear in popular culture, like the Stars and Bars flags or the monuments to Confederate generals. But there are other remnants of the Confederacy that are still with us. Today, we're going to talk about one of them, and it's one that some people might not even connect with the Confederacy. We sent our producer, Saeed T. John Thomas, to ask people about it. I'm a journalist working for a history show, and, and I was wondering if I could play you a song and just get your thought on like what you think about it. Okay, awesome. Officially, this song is called I Wish I Was in Dixie's Land. And during the Civil War, it became the unofficial anthem of the Confederacy. The song is still heard in the South today. And so when you play it for certain folks who grew up down there, you often get a reaction like this. Makes me feel good. Yeah, goes back to the roots. What roots? <clears throat> well, I'm from South Carolina, so I mean, it's, I mean, down in Dixie, it's, I mean, it's an upbeat song about the roots of everything, from everything, not just one particular person, but everybody. But of course, because of the song's tie to the Confederacy, it also provokes another very different kind of response. It's kind of sad when I hear that. I think about slavery and the things that my family went through when I was a little girl. What, what kind of things? Uh, work, working for the, the white man. You know, uh, being maids in their houses and farm workers, you know, used to um, pill tobacco, as, a, as I remember as a child. But that's not a song you would play on your downtime. Oh, no. No. It reminds me of slavery and war. Hey, Chinch, do you remember when you first heard it? I mean, to me, that song is kind of like the anthem of white supremacy. You know, I mean, I know it was a popular song for the Confederacy. But, you know, my first introduction to it actually was when I was little. And I used to watch, like, the Dukes of Hazzard. What? Yo, for like a brief period, I was like really into the Dukes of Hazzard. I mean, after we put the rebel flag on there and stuck that Dixie horn in there, there couldn't have been nothing more appropriate than General Lee. 
the General Lee, you know, and Daisy Duke and all that. You know, and it was like, nah, 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 you know, I was like, yeah, I was like, kind of running around singing that song. And probably, I'm sure my dad saw that. It was like, very quickly, I was banned in the house. I couldn't, you know, there was no, like, there was no Dukes of Hazard. This is our secret, by the way. You can't tell anyone this. It's, yeah, okay. <laughs> So, you know, growing up in Charleston, South Carolina, to me, like the song was just, it was everywhere. It was in the ether. You know, like if you're walking down the street, you might pass a a, a wedding, you'd hear the song. Or if somebody scored a, a touchdown at a football game, hell, you'd actually hear people whistling it. In real life, people actually would street. whistle Dixie. Yeah. I mean, that people did, you know, it's a catchy tune. And, you know, the song goes through like different periods. And I think when I was growing up, it was, it was, there was this sense that it had been kind of cleansed of its evil past. Uh, you know, almost neutered, right? I mean, I think that's one of the reasons why you could hear it on the Dukes of Hazard. It would not be played on any TV show today, right? But even with that effort, the history of the song is kind of inescapable. It always manages to somehow resurface, no matter what you do. I mean, it's not for nothing that this song was the musical score to the, the pro-clan epic Birth of a Nation a century ago. And only a few months ago was the name of that white nationalist gathering in Charlottesville, the Dixie Freedom Rally. This song has a long history in America. It's a history I thought I knew. But so far in making this show, we found that every aspect of the Civil War that we've looked at has had this other hidden history. We wondered if Dixie was the same. And so I started digging into the song. And of course, turns out the history of Dixie is a hot mess. And everything I thought I knew to be true is wrong. I'm Chinjirai Kumanyika. And I'm Jack Hitt. And this is Uncivil. Where we ransack America's past. And discover that history is only kind to those who write it. So all my life, I have known three basic facts about Dixie. It was a Confederate anthem. It was written by a Southerner. And it was written during the war. Wrong, wrong, and wrong. It turns out it was a pop song written by a Yankee in Manhattan before the war. I learned all this from Christian McWhorter, a researcher at the Lincoln Presidential Library. So Dixie is a minstrel song. Uh... Daniel Decatur Emmett, the guy who wrote it, was one of the founders of minstrelsy. Minstrelsy, of course, being... White people painting themselves up in blackface, going up on stage and doing songs built around a caricatured image of African Americans. It's a fundamentally racist style of music. And Emmett, he was the one who came up with the idea of a minstrel troupe that instead of having one guy in blackface on stage, you'd have a whole bunch of guys uh, and they would all play different characters. In every minstrel show, the last song was called The Walk Around, the big crowd-pleasing foot-stomper with all the musicians on stage. And Dixie was written as one of these. And these songs were incredibly popular with minstrel audiences in all the places where these shows were big. Where were most of these minstrel shows performed? The big cities in the North, New York, Chicago, Philadelphia, you know, Boston, they are a Northern phenomenon. That's right. Dixie wasn't born out of a Southern racist tradition. It was born out of a Northern racist tradition. Most of those people in that white audience 
thought of minstrelsy not as a caricature, but as a genuine representation of what African-American music in the South was like. Reporting. Journalism. Yes. So the song had a huge following in the North. But the question is, how did it become a Confederate anthem? Well, first, it broke out of the minstrel shows and went national. It was this huge hit in 1859, 1860. Mm -hmm. Today, it would be the number one song. The, the way music worked back then was not the way it works now because there was no recorded sound. And so if there was a hit song, like other performers would pick it up and start doing it, right? And so one of them was a guy named Jay Newcomb. And uh, Jay Newcomb toured the South in uh, 1860 uh, and ends up in New Orleans where he performs Dixie. And all this happens right around the time that Lincoln gets elected and the southern, the deep South, at least, starts to secede. And so they're, you know, they're literally ripping the Union's old anthems out of their songbooks. They're looking for a good replacement. Well, well, here's this song, Dixie. And at least the, you know, first couple verses and chorus uh, sure sound pro-Confederate to me. So let's uh, let's start using it. The lyrics do tell a story, but almost nobody knows them. Only the chorus gets sung. In Dixieland, I'll take my stand to live and die in Dixie. And once Confederates started using it, it went from pop song to anthem. But here's what really launched it. On February 18, 1861, the Confederacy swore in their first president. It gets played at, at Jefferson Davis's inauguration in, in Montgomery, and that kind of gives it the unofficial you know, seal of approval, and then it, it goes from there. So the anthem of the Confederate States of America was a northern song written in Manhattan by a Yankee. That's a lot to wrap your head around right there. But hold on, because none of that is right either. People always debate about who wrote songs, but in the case of Dixie, there's a really good reason to go down this rabbit hole. First, you know that New Yorker who wrote it? Daniel Emmett, when he told the story of where the song came from, here's what he'd say. It was a cold and rainy afternoon in New York City when I suddenly heard the first line in my head. I wish I was in the land of cotton. Old times there are not forgotten. And the whole song sprang all at once onto paper. And that was his story. But in Emmett's hometown in Ohio, there's another story about where this song came from, and it goes like this. So Emmett is from Mount Vernon, Ohio, and there's a African-American musical family around the same time Emmett is growing up there called the Snowdens. The story is that this family had this song uh, that had Dixie in it and that Emmett must have heard it growing up. He committed it to memory and, you know, he's got to write a song one night in 1859. He goes ahead and writes down this song that the Snowdens taught him. And there's good reason to believe this version is the true version. The Snowdens were really well known. People came from all around to the Snowden farm to hear their concerts. They were basically the Jackson Five of the mid-19th century Upper Ohio Valley. But besides them being famous, there's another reason Emmett might have heard of them. The Snowdens live next door to Emmett's grandparents. In Mount Vernon, the fact that Emmett stole this song has long been an open secret. There's this oral tradition there that the Snowden family uh, taught Dixie to Emmett. 
This is codified in the two graves. Emmett's grave, which the United Daughters of Confederacy later put this big monument over it saying, you know, the man who wrote Dixie. And then something like a few miles away from that is this grave for the Snowden family. And it says they taught uh, Dixie to Emmett. Taught, it says. The Snowdens may have written it, or other black musicians may have. In those days, especially among African Americans, there wasn't much concern with authorship. You wrote a song, and you taught it to people, and then they taught you a song. The whole idea of claiming credit only starts to matter if you live in Manhattan, where a song gets sold as sheet music and can make you famous. All right, Jack, so I just learned a black family might have written Dixie. You know, that's the thing. I mean, <laughs> but it's, here's like, usually when I learn that white folks have stolen black culture, I'm glad we're finally getting our credit. And in this case, I'm not sure that I want credit for Dixie, right? I mean, and some of it is like, I don't know what to do with that, right? I'm not going to start playing Dixie. I don't know. I, like, maybe I need to hear from somebody else, like another person of color who, who knows more about the history. Actually, could we... Would it be possible for us to find a black musician who maybe knows this history and has a different response to it? After the break, Chinjirai talks with a black musician who has played Dixie, Justin Robinson. So before the break, we learned that Dixie definitely wasn't written by a Confederate Southerner and probably wasn't even written by a white New Yorker. Most likely, it was written by a free Black family in Ohio. But even knowing this, when I listen to the song now, it, I just imagine slaveholders loving the song. It still feels like the soundtrack of white supremacy to me. And I can't really imagine Black folks wanting to sing the song or listen to it. So when I heard there was a Black musician out there performing Dixie, I had questions. The, when it comes to the song Dixie, right? Like I have a relationship to it where it for me is like the sonic version of the confederate flag right <laughs> there's an uncomfortability inherent with the song and i'm just wondering if you have any of that um i don't have any from a personal level but like what does it mean for a black person to be playing the song that was probably written by a black person but in the middle period has been co-opted by white supremacist ideology that's weird. Like, it's a, that's a weird sandwich. I wanted people to sit in that, and I wanted to set it firmly on people's plates so they could regard it and have their own reactions to it. This is Justin Robinson. He's one of the founding members of the band, the Carolina Chocolate Drops. And to understand what first attracted Justin to the song Dixie, you have to understand how he came to love this style of music in the first place. It started with the banjo. I'm from North Carolina, so it's the sounds of it are always around, whether you want to hear them or not. Purely, it was a sonic, uh, a sonic love affair at the beginning, and then I learned more about the history later. But Justin knew the real roots of this music. The banjo comes from Western Africa, so Senegal, Gambia. My ancestors may or may not have played that instrument. I don't know, um, and it kind of doesn't matter. To be able to hold that instrument in my hands now, knowing that this Senegalese instrument, Gambian instrument, traveled all across the ocean and is sitting in my hands in North Carolina now is kind of amazing. 
And it was this sense of excitement about these instruments and this music that brought Justin to the Black Banjo Gathering, a place where he knew he could meet other Black musicians who loved them too. Uh, people played and people talked and people met each other. And um, there, I knew that there was going to be a Black fiddle player, Joe Thompson, there. And so I wanted to go meet him. When Justin met Joe Thompson, Joe was in his 80s. And he'd been playing string music since he was a kid. He was sort of one of very few, anyway, who played the music traditionally, who got it from his father, and his father got it from his father, sort of passed down through an oral tradition. Learning the music directly from Joe had a real impact on Justin. He'd always been a fan of this style of music, but playing it with Joe made him want more. Justin started spending every Thursday night with Joe and a couple of other musicians who he met at the banjo gathering. And we were in the country, and we were in North Carolina, and we were, you know, in a hot-ass house in April, um, because he's old. He was old at the time, and you know how old people keep their houses sometimes. It was the three of us. It was me, Dom, and Rhiannon, and sometimes um, Sule. And his wife would be there, and it was an all-black space. And that is the context in, in which it sort of, it's its genesis. It was these nights in that hot Carolina house that eventually made the chocolate drops. They became a band dedicated to playing music in the black string tradition. That's Peace Behind the Bridge from the Chocolate Drops album, Genuine Negro Jig. Justin and the other Chocolate Drops wanted the audiences at their shows to feel the music they played as a Black tradition. And so when they thought about Dixie and how Daniel Emmett likely stole the song from a Black band, the Snowdens, it made sense to perform it. Having that additional information about the Snowdens and about their story and, and all that made it a richer internal conversation. The other members of the band would talk about, and we would all talk about its origins, it was, you know, a contentious piece of music to be playing, certainly by Black people. Yeah, because probably nobody Black has played it since the Snowdens. Certainly not in any popular way. So yeah, we did it to be provocative. As a reclamation. A way to tell a different story about the song. I thought it was part of a larger story that we were telling. The story of how things are misappropriated and then resold and repackaged with their original contents sort of hollowed out. Justin says he would avoid the lyrics of Dixie altogether, so no one sung them. They just played the instrumental music the way they imagined the Snowdens playing it. When y'all would play this song, was there a lot of setup? Nope, I almost never said anything. Mm. I let people come to their own conclusions. So I've been to a couple Chocolate Drop concerts. And here's what you have to know. A lot of times, almost everybody in the audience is white. And so I had to ask. I guess what I want to ask you is, let me ask it like this. Periodically, for whatever reasons, white folk will invite you into a coon space. And when they do that, it's never like, I'm going to invite you to a coon space. You're going to have to break that down. I've never heard that term used in that particular way. What does that mean? Okay, well, you know, like to me, what I'm talking about is like their folks will invite you into a project that's about performing something for their pleasure. 
Maybe even oh, sure. they invite yeah, okay. you to dehumanize yourself for profit, for their pleasure, to deepen their mm-hmm. sense of identity. Uh-huh. So I guess the question I'm asking you about about this is how do how do I'm interested in what insights you have about how to na- navigate that. You're sort of hitting on the head of what it means to be black in America or indigenous in America or you know, sort of any other group who is having to navigate these things about how to, how to deal with sort of whiteness and keep your own humanity in the same time, mm. um, which can be complicated. Um, but our ancestors certainly figured out how to do it, and I don't think I'm any less smart than they are. Mm. Um, and so we're talking about these sort of coon spaces, as you call them now. As the chocolate drops, we have played in many, many such a space, spaces that I would rather forget. It was a, it got, it got weird and it continued to get weirder. Um, is there a particular moment where you were like, that you remember where you were like, this is, this is like, this is really weird. Yeah. I can tell you the time. It became a little too much. We were in South Carolina. Now my parents are both from South Carolina. And as most black people have their roots in South Carolina, Virginia. We got to the festival grounds. It was a bluegrass festival in Charleston. I, we got on the, the into the property. I was asleep in the van, and I sat up straight because I didn't know at this point. I didn't know where the gigs were. I just got in the van and shut up. Um, and I was like, "Where are we?" My my spirit felt wrong, and as we pulled up, I was like, "Oh." It was a place Justin had known about since he was a kid, Boone Hall. Boone Hall is uh, one of the first plantations that are in that that is in Charleston, the big fancy place like Gone with the Wind, Terra kind of plantation. And then they got on stage, and there was nothing but white people in there. Um, and so that was like, we might be doing something wrong. <laughs> That's what I felt in that moment. I was like, this. The irony is not lost on me that we are at a plantation playing fiddle and banjo for an all white audience. In Charleston, South Carolina. I was like, this is so palatable. They love it because it makes them feel comfortable. I walked through the crowd to go get something to eat um, at one of the concession stands. And I don't know how many times I heard the N-word like as I walked through the crowd. It was soul crushing. This feels like not narrative disruption. This feels like replication. This experience at Boone Hall was one of many, and it all started to affect Justin. And I became resentful of the audiences. Um, mm. And so that's, then that started to mess with my own feeling toward the music, which I really couldn't handle. I like the music. I just do. As a me human being, Justin Robinson, I like how the music sounds. Um, and so it was the, 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 the public of that was messing with that love. I can't, I can't in good conscience play old time music in public, uh, and I haven't for quite a while. I stopped playing the music pretty much altogether. So it's heavy listening to what happened to Justin, and just like the effect it had on his relationship to this music that he loved so much, because Justin created a possibility for me to have a relationship to Dixie and not just Dixie, but to that kind of music. But then when you see what happened, right, it almost like confirmed a lot of the fears that I had. 
you know, but that's actually not my takeaway totally. Like, uh, I mean, on one hand, yeah, I definitely my recommendation is if you're black, don't go play Dixie on stage in front of white people. But I, I feel a, a little bit sad. You know, Justin stopped playing the fiddle music altogether, like old time music altogether. And I have a sense of what was lost from that, you know. Here's the thing I think about with Dixie, right? Here's what makes Dixie complicated. Like, on one level, it's real easy just to be like, forget Dixie, it's racist and everything. But I, I think about the Snowdens, and I think about that town, Mount Vernon. I mean, somebody took time to write in that gravestone that Snowden taught Dixie to Emmett. And to me, that's representative of this Black community that wants us to remember. And I know there's people in that community that do remember. And I just feel like if I say... You know, forget Dixie. Am I betraying them in a way, right? And that's that's what makes this like difficult for me. And I, and I I don't you know I'm not sure what the answer is. I know I think for me, it's I, I just have to figure out a way to sit with that discomfort. For Justin, he found his own solution. I just moved out to the country, which I love. It's wonderful. Ever since I've been out there, the banjo has just been speaking to me in this really particular way, saying, play me, play me, play me, play me. He said that, you know, sometimes he'll go out. Like, he talked about this one time when he went out. And, you know, he walked down. He has, like, this fire pit uh, that's, like, about 100 yards from his house. Uh, In that instance, it was kind of a chilliest night. I walked myself down there with my, I think, a small jacket on. He had, you know, the, the banjo kind of slung, you know, over his shoulder or whatever. So I made myself a little little baby fire. And, and he just would play. I can conjure up my own memories of playing with Joe. That's who I learned those songs from. That's sort of my most, my deepest connection to this music is through him. It connects me to... It connects me back across the ocean to, you know, African ancestors. And I can appreciate its its sound. It sounds good. Civil is produced by Chris Neary, Chiquita Pascal, and Saeed Tijan Thomas. We had more help from MR Daniel. Our senior producer is Kimmy Regler. Editing by Caitlin Kenny, Alex Bloomberg, and Pat Walters. Our show is mixed by Bobby Lord, Haley Shaw, and Emma Munger. The music for Uncivil was composed by Bobby Lord and Matthew Bowl in collaboration with Ann Caldwell and the Magnolia Singers. We'd like to thank everyone in the Lowcountry for a fantastic week of recording. Additional music features J.C. Brooks, Sun Little, Rocco Walker, Haley Shaw, and Saeed T. John Thomas. Our show is fact-checked by Julie Beer. Our secret weapon is Christopher Peake. Special thanks to Randy Snowden. Those were great talks. For more on the Snowden family and the song Dixie, check out the book Way Up North in Dixie by Howard and Judith Sachs. Uncivil is a production of Gimlet Media. Our website is uncivil.show. 
We're on Twitter and Facebook at Uncivil Show. And don't forget to join our Facebook group, Uncivil Podcast. I'm Jack Hitt. And I'm Chenjirai Kumanyika. <laughs>